Welcome to the audiobook version of the novel Mercy Not Sacrifice by Dan Parks, read by the author. Chapter 6. It Runs in the Family. My nephew Jeffrey sat low on his wooden desk. He was only 12 years old, but his eyes had already seen a lifetime worth of pain. Thick, dark brown hair was pushed back on the top of his head, and shrugged shoulders supported the forearms that linked to the hands holding his chin. A textbook sat unopened on the desk in front of him. The Civil War was a hard time for families. In the border states, brother fought against brother, father against son. Nothing was out of question, Mrs. Jones said. The back of Jeffrey's earlobe was flicked again. It was the left one this time, and the temperature of the room seemed to rise and he took off his red uniform sweater in response. Jeffrey received a kick in his lower back by the boy named Roger who sat behind him. Ugh! He grunted. Mrs. Jones turned from the blackboard to face the 25 students in front of her, and searching for the source of the noise, her eyes stopped on Jeffrey. Did you have something to share, Jeffrey? she asked. Mrs. Jones had taught at St. Michael's Catholic School for 20 years. She was tall and strong, which had worked great on her father's farm, where she baled hay and cut tobacco, but it didn't help her get a chance at a date. A decade earlier, when she had been known as Tina, she had convinced Ronald Jones to marry, and he died five years later. Ronald had been 30 years her senior and smoked a corncob pipe. His house down by the river, north of town, wasn't much, but it sat upon a thousand acres of prime ground. So, though now widowed, her balance sheet improved from the short diversion of marriage in her life. No, Jeffrey responded, his face flushed with embarrassment. It won't happen again. Roger had began to bully the year before. It started when he realized that he stood a half a foot taller and had 20 pounds on the next biggest boy. He had needed an outlet to release the pain that his father gave him, and what he had seen done to his little sister. Jeffrey became his target because of his lack of resistance. The old Catholic school building faced the east. The back of the building and the windows of Mrs. Jones' class faced the Missouri River in the falling afternoon sun. Her class was the last of the day, and at a time when the attention span of the students is the shortest and the sun is the warmest. A silhouette of Mrs. Jones' face appeared in a shadow on the blackboard, and it was her nose that stood out the most. She tapped hard with the chalk as she drew a line down the middle of the board. The Civil War divided the country in two sections, she said, the North, known as the Union, and the South, which was called the Confederacy. Roger took Jeffrey's sweater from the back of his chair. Jeffrey did nothing but long for the school day to end. Then he could sink back into himself. Jeffrey, Roger whispered, as he took the sweater and sat on it and farted, the two boys that flanked Roger on his right, Max and Al, laughed hysterically. Max had bright red hair and a freckle for a face, and Al was a boy that tried to imitate his hero, Roger. Jeffrey clenched his mouth as he held his emotions in. Mrs. Jones faced the class once again. Any questions? The young girl to Jeffrey's left raised her hand. Yes, Jackie, Mrs. Jones said. Who started the war? Jackie was a teacher's dream student. She was patient and kind and took her studies seriously. Her body had matured much faster than the rest of the class, and her uniform flattered the young curves of her body. She had full eyebrows that adorned her dark brown eyes like the soft pink clouds above a sunset. Jeffrey's notebook was full of notes on Jackie. Great question, Jackie, Mrs. Jones said. She was refreshed to be able to take a new angle on the notes that she had written for the 7th grade history class years earlier. Mrs. Jones turned again to the blackboard to answer Jackie's question. This time, 
The shadow of her nose became bigger than before. Roger slapped Jeffrey on the back, pushing his desk forward and said, Look at Pinocchio! Mrs. Jones turned around at the tumult to see that the force from Roger's blow had made Jeffrey rise in his seat. He stood upright, ready to take the blame. Jeffrey, she said, wrinkling her forehead. No more. Out in the hall. Jeffrey left his seat and walked towards the door. He tried as he could to muster up some courage as he bravely stared down Roger and took a glance at Jackie afterwards. While turning the knob to exit the class, he nodded at Mrs. Jones and mouthed, Sorry. The upstairs of St. Michael's Catholic School contained four rooms, the 6th, 7th, and 8th grade classrooms, as well as the school library. The carpet was a rich red like the exit sign above the back door leading to the fire escape. Jeffrey took a seat in the chair next to the door. The weight of the air became heavy as he waited for the bell to ring to end the day. Sitting there, he made the decision to leave before Roger came out. Time spent in purgatory moves faster than the second hand of the clock did that day. When the clock struck three and the bell rang, Jeffrey stood and marched past the door towards the stairs. In a counter to his retreat, Roger burst out of the door with Jeffrey's sweater. Don't forget your sweater, Roger yelled. Roger held the red school sweater up high and waved it as a battle flag. And in an instant, Jeffrey heeded the call to stand up for himself. But when he stormed back in his approach, he was unaware that Max and Al had flanked him from behind. Give me my sweater, Roger, Jeffrey demanded. I'm not going to let you push me around anymore. Roger walked towards him and made each step count. It didn't stop until he breathed down on top of him. Not gonna, Roger said. Do it, boys. On Roger's order, they came in with force. And each boy swiftly grabbed a side of Jeffrey's blue uniform slacks and pulled them down. A look of delightful horror came to their faces when both Jeffrey's underwear and pants came down. It was in that moment that time slowed for Jeffrey. The clock on the wall outside of Mrs. Jones' classroom ticked a second a minute instead of 60. His vision narrowed and it seemed as if the whole world stopped and stared at him, standing there half-naked. As the other upstairs classes dismissed, the hall filled with students, and Jeffrey didn't have to look down at his bare knees to hear them knocking together. Look at it, Roger said, pointing with a sneer. It's not even below his shirt. Jeffrey peeked down to see the head of his undeveloped penis was exposed, and pulled down his shirt to cover up what he could. Ha ha ha, Max added. Oh my god. A circle of kids began to fill in and around Jeffrey, and their floating faces of terror began to chime in. The laughter stung his ears like bee stings and sent bullets through his heart. His bottom lip began to quiver, and when he bit it to steady himself, he tasted blood in his mouth. He saw an opening towards the door of the 8th grade class, where there was a hole the width of three kids, and he ran for it. But he didn't anticipate how hard it was to run with pants around his ankles, and two yards before the stairs he tripped on the high bit of carpet by the janitor's closet and fell to his face. The crowd of students roared and the herd began to slowly move towards him, ejaculating in their joy at his discomfort. He got back to his feet before they gained on him and he pulled up his pants in a single motion and skipped down the stairs taking two at a time. Jackie had experienced most of the emotional wheel by the time Jeffrey had made the stairs. Her contempt had begot aggressiveness and spawned a righteous anger as she wiped a tear from her cheek and walked to Roger and smacked him across the face. At the landing in the stairs, Jeffrey took a deep breath to gather his composure and turn the corner coming down the final leg of steps where his younger brother and sister waited. He grabbed Winston with his right and Selma with his left and hurried them out the front door. What's wrong, Jeffrey? Selma asked. Selma was a pretty young girl with memorable green eyes. 
She spoke in a dull, almost raspy tone that comes from a sore throat or a cold, but it never escaped her. She had just started kindergarten that year, and school came naturally for her, as she had far eclipsed her classmates in both reading and writing. Nothing, Jeffrey responded. They walked out the door and passed the school bus that waited outside. Winston looked back at the smiling bus driver, Rod Goodwin, and waved. Why are we not taking the bus, Winston asked. Because, said Jeffrey, we're going to walk. The walk to their house was only two miles, but Gardenstown is full of hills, and by the time they had made it to the city park, Selma had been riding piggyback on Jeffrey for some time. Winston did his duty of carrying the extra backpack. When the trio crossed the pedestrian bridge over Bear Creek, the school bus went by, and on the back of the bus, three window panes were slipped down with a head sticking out of each window. Glad to see you have some pants on, Roger yelled as the bus drove on and up the hill. At the dinner table that night, Jeffrey's dad and mom were fighting again. His dad was my older brother Ian, and his mom was Kathleen, who was the daughter of the local factory owner, Fabian Moore. Winston and Selma had become to know the yelling of their parents as normal, but Jeffrey knew that this wasn't always so. He was five years older than Winston, and still remembered a time when his parents' marriage had a promise and a future. But there was once a time when Ian and Kathleen could see the sparkle in one another's eyes. There had been simpler times, when happiness on a Friday night was a cheap bottle of wine and a blanket in the sweet falling summer sun. The only thing left now was the scars on their pride and torn and disfigured hearts. Kathleen struggled with the self-confidence that she used to get from Ian. She had looked upon the future with delight, because in Gardenstown, a moor just didn't marry any old schmuck. A moor and a carman getting married was a recipe for success, and they did all right. In fact, they didn't struggle at all with money, but in his labor to make a career, the stress had taken a toll on Ian's body. Kathleen no longer could hide the shame that she held deep within her being, and in retaliation to her own torment, she took out her frustrations on Ian. When she was really needing a boost, she would do it in front of the kids. It was nice seeing the O'Malley's at the store earlier, said Kathleen. Dinner that night was noodles from a box and burger from the freezer. The family lived in a big house with crown molding and wood floors, but it was poorly cared for. It was pretty and shiny on the outside, but dirty and decrepit on the inside. It was nice to catch up, responded Ian. He took a bite of the noodles that had gone cold. Ian had worked at Gardenstown Bank and Trust for 15 years and had risen all the way up to be the president. He was the youngest ever to do so in the 150-year history of the bank. His title had changed three years ago, and on that night he sat at the table with his shoulders resting on his gut and a face as long as a horse's. He stared past his wife and his children and looked through the glass doors to the pond that lay behind it. Ian wondered where he had taken a wrong turn in his life. But before that thought of self-reflection lasted too long, he ate it away with another scoop of cold noodles. I saw it in their eyes, she said. They saw how fat you've become. Jeffrey sat next to Selma and patiently rubbed her back. He looked at her soft, hazel-colored hair and knew that if they could all finish their plates, then they could leave the table. When his parents fought, he wondered how much it was that Selma retained, and it hurt him to think that she knew any depth of it. Even a dipping of her toes in the pain he knew would be too much for him to handle. Jeffrey wanted to shield her from hurt and instead bear the burden himself. Kathleen, Ian said, you really think they were thinking about how I looked and not how you looked like a strung out skeleton? Ian paused and exhaled two short breaths. I don't want to do this tonight, he said. Can we enjoy this dinner as a family? Kathleen's hand began to tremble and her fork tapped on the plate in front of her. What do you think, kiddos? Kathleen asked as she looked determined for an answer at the young eyes staring up at her. Do you think your fat-ass dad is an embarrassment? She stood up, 
and lifted her shirt, exposing her ribs and bones. This is how a woman should look, Kathleen said. Sexy and slim like a runway model. Ian looked over at Jeffrey and nodded, indicating that the three kids could be excused from the table. The kids rose from their seats, but Kathleen wouldn't have it. God damn it, she yelled. Sit down. They obeyed and pulled their chairs back to the table and hung their heads. The vein in the middle of Ian's forehead grew more distinct, and it started to pulse in unison with his heartbeat. Kathleen saw that she was getting to him, and in response, she stood up and grabbed the pot that sat in the middle of the table, containing what was left of the noodle dinner. I want you to see the shame that your father has become, Kathleen said. She then took the pot and walked to Ian, and they met each other's nervous eyes. It had only been fifteen and a half years earlier that they had married. The great question of their lives was how did their marriage turn so sour? Was it the time that he challenged her father, or was it when she began to be friendly with her director at work? The expression on Kathleen's face changed to a devilish joy when she lifted Ian's shirt and exposed his stomach to their kids. His chest was hairless and his midsection bellowed over his unbuttoned pants. This is not what you want to grow up and look like, kids, Kathleen said. Jeffrey wanted to stop it all. He wanted to walk to his mom and give her a hug. He knew that she was only acting out in the desperate place of a lonely and broken spirit. He wanted to wake his dad up from the boredom of his life and inspire him to be alive again. But he was all too soon interrupted. Kathleen took the pot of noodles and dumped it over Ian's head, and it fell down his face. Eat that, fat ass! She then looked at him in an anxious horror, and Ian stood up as quickly as he could. His breath was deep and labored with anger, and without hesitation he lunged at her. Kathleen knew that she had went too far and jumped from his grasp and ran out of the dining room, through the living room, and down the hall to the master bedroom. She slammed the door before he could get to it. Ian beat the door with a fist until his hand went through it. He didn't return to the table with his bloody knuckles, but instead passed by the kitchen and went to his office at the other end of the house and shut the door. Later that night, after Jeffrey had helped Selma through her bath and helped Winston with his homework, he was in the kitchen doing that night's dishes when Kathleen came in from the bedroom and walked in the kitchen to see him standing at the sink. Do we have any clean spoons? Jeffrey rummaged through the drawer, past the good spoons that he'd just put away, and took the one from the back with the bent handle and burnt end. Is this what you're looking for? Thank you, sweetie, she said and walked to him and kissed him on the forehead. Always my responsible one. Love you. Love you too, he responded as she left the kitchen and went back down the hall. Jeffrey gazed out the window over the back deck and passed the pond at the rows of trailers that sat across the way and looked directly at my mobile home to see that my bedroom light was on. His lip began to tremble, but he stopped himself once more. Kathleen had been an RN at the nursing home in town. The director there had once looked at her to become the lead nurse. She was an athlete in high school and college, where she earned a scholarship in track and field, but her once fit and muscular body had withered away since her accident at work. At the nursing home one afternoon, she had responded to a call to Mr. Nagy's room. He was an old man with dementia that was well known for his ways, and she entered his room with a knock and a hint of apprehension. Can I help you, Mr. Nagy? she asked. She noticed that he was strangely dressed. Your gown is on backwards. She walked towards him to help, but it was then that he exposed himself and his intentions and sprang on her, knocking her on the bed, landing on top of her. He had been a lumberjack in his day, and his body still showed the natural strength of the occupation as he easily overpowered her. It was the policy of the home not to hit the residents, so she improvised by biting the wrist that pinned her to the bed. It distracted him long enough for her to get out from underneath him, 
but then she fell the three feet to the floor. The doctor had given a diagnosis of a broken tailbone and prescribed her oxycotton and bed rest. Kathleen had always been a busy person, and it was where she found her worth. When her purpose was taken away, she had no idea what to do with her time or herself. The first time, the doctor believed that she had lost the pills and prescribed her more. The second time, she needed an early refill. He was too busy to notice and prescribed her more again. Four months after she was given an all-clear to go back to work, she was still at home, claiming to be in pain and unable to return. The pills grew harder to come by and more expensive, but her addiction grew. She turned to injecting heroin when, when she went back to work because she could cut costs by taking syringes from the nursing home. A relationship is a two-way street. It wasn't solely Ian's or Kathleen's fault, but it was the responsibility of both. They had forgotten how in love they once were. Life had happened, and they had failed to react, and it was Jeffrey who was left to shoulder the load. He finished drying the dishes and put them away. He walked to the junk drawer next to the stove and rummaged through it to find a box cutter at the bottom and put it in his pocket. He then walked to the door of his dad's office, where he saw the light of the computer screen pouring into the now dark kitchen. Good night, Dad, he said. Night, Jeffrey. And then went back to his bag of cookies and his Google search of how to get a divorce. Jeffrey walked through the living room and passed the stairway into the hall that led to his mom's bedroom. It was dark, but he could see that a light emitted from the bathroom. Sticking his head into the room, he said, Good night, Mom. Good night, sweetie. Kathleen responded through the deepness of a fresh heroin high. As he left, she slouched on the tile floor with her head atop the toilet seat and fell fast asleep. Jeffrey made his rounds past the kids' rooms as well. Selma had her eyes closed tight with her head on her pillow, and her hands still held on to the Door Explorer read-along book. He took it from her and covered her small angelic frame with the comforter on the bed and shut the light off on his way out. Downstairs in the basement, Jeffrey checked in on his brother to see that he was playing his basketball game on the PlayStation in his bedroom, and Winston looked up to acknowledge his entry. Promise you'll go to sleep after that game is finished? Promise, Winston responded. Love you, little bro. Love you. Jeffrey slowly closed his eyes as he prepared himself to walk into the bathroom and grab some tissue from the roll. He then walked into his dark bedroom and shut the door. He turned on the bedside lamp and took out the box cutter from his pants and sat it down on his nightstand. Changing into the gym shorts that he had slept in every night that year, he took off his socks and saw where he had cut himself before. He already had learned that if he cut on his ankles, it wouldn't be seen. It was his own guilty pleasure before, a secret that he could keep to himself. It was in hiding that he felt found. Jeffrey took the box cutter and held it tight in his hand. He slid open the blade and let the metal rest on the virgin skin of his wrist. It was cold. The blade promised a release as it blinded him from the veil of emotional pain. Lies became truth, and truth was so far away that it seemed imaginary. The next morning, when it came time for the kids to go to school, Winston and Selma were waiting at the front door when Ian went to leave for work. Where's Jeffrey? He asked the kids. I got the phone call a few hours later when he was stabilized at the hospital. Hello, Ian, I answered, surprised to be woken up by my brother. Johnny, he said. It's Jeffrey. He's in the hospital. What for? Well, he said, Kathleen and I have been going through a rough patch lately. We might be heading for divorce. And what does that have to do with Jeffrey? Remember when Mom and Dad were going through their stuff? Ian asked. And how you were always a responsible one in the family? Yeah, I answered. I had to be. That's Jeffrey now. 
And apparently he started to do the other thing you did as well. My heart sank. What other thing? I asked nervously as I looked at the box of razor blades sitting on my bedside table. You know, he said. Sorry to bring it up. I know you're over it now, but the cutting that you used to do. Oh, that. Do you think you can help him through it? Yes, I said. I think I can do that. 